water where we drink and we are satisfied. And the opposite of that truth as we looked at was for us to believe that he does not satisfy, that he is not enough. And we continue to drink from the stagnant water of broken cisterns that we have dug for ourselves that do not hold water. And I shared with you that this misconception we often have, if we're honest with ourselves, is that we believe in the power of Jesus to save us, but we do not believe that he can satisfy us. We want his salvation, but we just don't think he's enough in this life to truly satisfy us. And so this week, building on that, I want us to spend our final time together in this series focusing on this truth. And that truth is that God is gracious, so I do not have to prove myself. God is gracious, so I do not have to prove myself. We live in a world that has created a cultural standard of having to prove ourselves in all things. I can think back to my early years in school at the anxiety I felt, even at a young age, of needing to perform. You know, even at an age before we know how to read, our performance is judged by smiley faces and frowny faces. Before you understand a number system, before you understand what A, B, C, D, E, or not E, I made some E's, I think, but A, B, C, D, and F, before we even found those, know what those things are, we're going to have a frowny face and a smiley face. You behave well, you color in the lines, you get a smiley face. You misbehave and act poorly and you scribble, you get a frowny face. We're judged instantly. Well, as you continue to progress in school, your behavior is then monitored in some settings by stars on a poster board with all these blanks. And you fill in all these stars, you behave well for a certain number of days, and you're going to get something. You're going to be rewarded. You know, if you prove yourself well in academics, you, you are rewarded and you have proven yourself by making the honor roll where your parents can get that sweet bumper sticker that my kid is an honor student at fill in the blank. And the one that always gets me was this mass anxiety attack that spread across the entire class like wildfire that we called the spelling bee. You know, they line these kids up and they're told to spell these words. And in front of all your peers, if you miss the word, you shamelessly walk back to your chair in humility because you, are, you did not make the cut. You did not prove yourself as one of the key spellers, so go sit down. Always hated being that first kid because you're just staring there looking at everybody who's better than you. And then when we get older, we begin to feel the pressure as we started dating. We had to prove ourselves worthy to be suitable to date. You know, when I was coming along, there was no text or social media. If you wanted a date, you called them or you went up to them face to face and asked them if they would go out. Or I guess the extent of our social interaction and dating was, you know, you'd get a friend to ask, hey, kind of go fill the waters, see if they're interested in any. But you were wanting to prove that you were worthy to be, to go out on a date with. And then comes our college years where we spend our time trying to perform, to prove ourselves worthy, to get scholarships and good grades and hopefully graduate, where we then can put together an impressive resume that a future employer will look at and deem us as worthy, proven, here's you a new job and a paycheck. And then we get into our adult years and we constantly feel the need to prove ourselves so we can get promotions and And we can get these job titles so we can buy a nice house and a better car. 
look like our other peers so we can prove that we have made it. We also have worth. And then we have kids, and we push our kids to perform so that we can get that sweet bumper sticker that our kids have proven themselves, honor students. We have pageants to judge and determine who is the most beautiful and who isn't, and we rank them in order. You're the most beautiful, you're next beautiful, you're next beautiful, you're next beautiful. We have pageants to tell us who is the most hospitable. Who's the most hospitable person? You're the most hospitable. And we judge that by an hour of spending time with you. Our TV has wired us to enjoy watching people on reality shows eliminated until we get to the end and we say, this is the best person. They made the cut. And we find ourselves constantly having to perform to prove ourselves. And the unfortunate thing is is that this leads us to constantly playing a role in a performance that where we have been cast apart and we are always being evaluated. And if we aren't careful, then we begin to judge our performance compared to others around us. I'm better than this person. I'm deeper than this person. Try to outdo other people's. And then our standard of measurement spiritually is no longer Jesus Christ, but our standard of spiritual activity is whether or not we are better than others. And this reality pushes us further and further away from an understanding of grace, that God is gracious. I want to give you a quick test on how to know if you truly get grace. Do you find yourself getting defensive when people point things out about you or critique something that you have done? Do you see absolutely nothing constructive about constructive criticism? What's your reaction? Do you defend yourselves? Do you find yourself feeling entitled when shown generosity? When someone is generous towards you, you don't see this as grace, but you see this as receiving something that you are worthy of, that you deserve. Do you find yourself judging others by how they look and what they do? Do you love getting credit for things? Are you fearful at the thought of failing to the point that it just disables you? You're fearful of not proving yourself. In your service, do you serve others so that you can feel good about yourself or that you can impress people? And does your Christian service feel like joyless duty when you aren't rewarded? And on a spiritual level, this causes us to have a misunderstanding or maybe an inability to understand how God can truly be gracious to us apart from our works to give us something that we did not earn. We believe this lie that God is not gracious and he doesn't freely give and so we spiritually feel the need to prove ourselves. I have to earn this. This can't possibly be true. Grace is too far-fetched. Why would anyone act like that on my behalf? And this leads us to begin to try to prove ourselves on three levels. We try to prove ourselves to God. God, I want to prove myself worthy The cross is scandalous. You couldn't have just done that for me. I've got to prove that I'm worthy of that. And then we begin to try to prove ourselves to others that we try to gain approval. I am a good person. And deep down, if we're honest, we have to try to prove ourselves to ourselves. You battle yourself to be convinced that you have worth. And I want us to look a little deeper this morning into the truth that God 
is gracious. And if you'll look in Psalm 103 with me, I want to begin with a passage of Scripture. <clears throat> and David writes in Psalm 103, verses 1 through 13, about the truth that God is gracious. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. Listen to what he does. He forgives your iniquity. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness. He works justice for the oppressed. Throughout the Bible we see he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And why is this? Because the Lord is merciful and gracious. Because he is slow to anger. And he is abounding in steadfast love. What unbelievable grace. The people of Israel, Adam, Eve, Abraham, no one earned these things. But because God is gracious and loving and steadfast, he freely gives these things to his people through grace. So what is grace? You know, if I were to define grace, I would define it as unmerited or unearned favor or approval. Unmerited or unearned favor or approval. This is freely given, unearned credit. Let's be careful in the beginning to realize that grace is not indifference. God's grace is not seeing us in our condition and saying, oh, well, we'll just forget about that. Grace is not indifference. It is not a passive non-response. It is a very intentional, unearned favor for those who deserve bad things. And the scandal of God's grace is that it is not grace plus works. It is not grace plus doing good with our behaviors. It is not grace plus worthiness. It is not grace plus anything. It is just grace. For sake of time, I want you to just you can uh, jot these, these verse references down. But Romans 11, verses 5 through 7, and talking about how God has been faithful to all people through to the nation of Israel. And he compares us, his faithfulness to us, as he did to the nation of Israel. And the scriptures say this in Romans 11, 5 through 7. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. First, uh, Second Timothy verse, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoners, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us, who called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's by his grace that you and I have any chance before him. This is not a passive overlooking of our condition 
but a very intentional offering of salvation. You are already approved because of Jesus before you ever perform. In fact, you and I have already performed and we have successfully and we have fully earned and deserved death because of our performance. Do you realize that because of this, that anything above the grave is a measure of grace in your life? Because death is our penalty for our sin. And so anything that he blesses us with is is an act of his grace to us. He has saved us outside of our actions by the actions of Jesus. God is so gracious. It's not about what we earn, but what he freely gives. Based on our performance, based on what you and I have done, we earned isolation, but he has graciously given us community. We earned abandonment, but he has graciously given us rescue. You and I earned to be orphans, but he has graciously given us adoption and sonship and an inheritance with Christ. Based on our performance, we earned separation, but we have graciously received reconciliation. Based on our performance, we have earned death, but we have been graciously given life. And church, until we see what we deserved, we will not appreciate what we have been given through grace. So we know that God is gracious. So what does this intentional grace to us accomplish? Flip with me to Ephesians chapter 2. So we acknowledge, okay, God is gracious. What does that mean for me? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of a disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which, whom, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what does grace accomplish for us? You and I were dead. Apart from grace, we are dead. This may go without saying, but dead people do not live. Dead people do not live. Dead people cannot produce life. 
Dead people cannot revive themselves. They can do nothing. They're dead. And you and I, by birth and action, are sinners. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned. Romans 6.23 says that there is a penalty for that sin, and it is death. We're dead. In Psalm 51.5, David writes in his psalm to, to God, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in, in, in iniquity. And he says, And even in sin did my mother conceive me. He said, Even at conception, I'm a sinner. But God, through his graciousness, he has saved us. It's a free gift. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. By, in verse 5, by grace we have been saved through faith. He has saved us from the power of sin. And he'll save us from the presence of sin. I love verse 7. Look back at verse 7 of that text. It says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Translation, we ain't seen nothing yet. He says, in the ages to come, I'm going to show you the immeasurable riches of my grace. So hear me this morning. God is gracious, and he has forgiven us. So we understand that God is gracious. He has demonstrated that through the cross. He has said, you were once dead, but now you are alive. I've given you life. I've I've breathed life back into you. You are now alive with me in Christ. You are dead to self. You are alive with me. And so we see that he has purpose. He says, not only are you alive and you've been saved by grace, but you are my workmanship. I poured myself into you to do some things that I have prepared beforehand that you would do. He says, I'm sovereign over your life. You're walking with me now. I have prepared things, good works that you're just going to walk in as you follow me. So we see that God is gracious through the cross And we understand that he is gracious, that we can do nothing to earn grace, but yet you and I labor and labor to prove ourselves to him and to others. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Familiar story, but I want you to read this through the filter that God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. We're going to see two pictures in Luke 15, verse 11, of one that under, has been demonstrated much grace and the other who misunderstands God's graciousness. Luke 15, 11 says this. Jesus says in a parable, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but yet I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son, so treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Side note, he's going to, he's prepared to go and earn and prove himself to the father by working for him. But the father said to his servants in verse 22, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. 
and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found and they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the brother was angry. He refused to go into the party. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I'd never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. <clears throat> it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. <clears throat> the story of the younger son reveals God's gracious behavior. The son asking for his inheritance from the father was the same as the son telling the father, I wish you were dead. You are more valuable to me dead than alive. I want my inheritance. Selling the inheritance was shameful because it meant losing the family. It meant losing his connection with them, the land they had acquired. He's selling it away. That was everything to them. Moving to another city was a rejection of his family. He says, I'm leaving all that is ours. I'm going somewhere else. And all of this is before we even get to his performance. He has spit in the face of the father before he's done anything. And then as a Jewish boy, we see him among the pigs, which are considered unclean, and he's working with them, wishing he could eat what they were eating. And I love how he says, you know, I'm going to go back. I'm not a son. I'm okay with that. I just want to eat again. I'll just work. I'll earn my way back into good standing with the father. I'll show him that I've changed. And the son had every right to be disinherited for even asking for the father to give him his portion. The father had every right to beat the son for trying to break free from the rule of the father. The father had every right to disown him for his way of living, but the father does the opposite. He throws a party. That's grace. And if this is a wonderful visual for us on what un unmerited, unearned grace looks like, then the picture of the older son is the picture of what it looks like to not truly believe the truth that God is gracious so we do not have to prove ourselves. The son, first of all, wrestled with restless anger. The older brother was so mad because the younger brother was being honored. He didn't earn this. You hadn't even given me a measly goat to celebrate, and I've done everything right. How does he get the fattened calf? And in our hearts, if we're honest, we believe him probably justified in his reaction. How many would, of us would think this same way? Now, wait a minute. I've done everything right. My life is terrible, and he's done nothing right, and he gets all this goodness. The son had done all things right. He had performed and it appeared that the older brother's performance had counted for nothing before the father. And that is the scandal of God's grace. 
When we do good, we expect good. And when we do bad, we expect suffering. And when this doesn't work out, this formula does not happen, we find ourselves angry. You're not a good God. What kind of grace are you extending that I've done all this stuff and you've done nothing for me? And we see also this, brother, this son, had, he, he performed for the father with a joyless duty. He had served his father in what seemed to be very begrudgingly. In some translations you may, be, you may have, it didn't say that I served you. He says, I slaved for you all these years. I've slaved for you. And when you and I perform to earn grace, it leads us to a joyless task where we are tempting to earn God's love and favor and grace when we have already received it. He's already freely given it to us. When we see God as a gracious father, we are then motivated to serve him out of joyful service. But I think also the brother, we see that he had, a, he, he, there was an anxious performance. The older son says, I've never disobeyed your command. He wanted everybody to know about his good works because he's trying to prove himself. As a pastor and as a church leader, those of you who lead groups, there's an anxiety created in preaching and teaching an incredible lesson each week so that you can fill a room up with people and find yourself as proving yourself. As parents, we're trying to produce wonderfully obedient children so we can prove that we've been good parents. Workers put in long, tireless hours, sacrificing family and rest to prove themselves at work, that I'm a proven worker. As Christians, we are anxious to perform so we will be seen as worthy. We volunteer ourselves to death. We make ourselves so busy with the things